Humans are naturally selfish, free riders, have limited levels of altruism. So we aren't angels. We aren't, we, we aren't some kind of perfect uh, specimen or animal that can solve these problems. That's why the problems continue. And so my idea is that we need to look at human, not just physical or health or cognitive limitations, but also our moral limitations in order to deal with the challenges that, that rapid advances in technology and globalisation create for us. That's Julian Savalescu, Professor of Practical Ethics at Oxford University. He argues that we actually have a moral imperative to improve future generations through genetic engineering. Humans have yet to evolve beyond a hunter-gatherer mentality, says Savalescu, and genetic engineering may be part of the answer to tackle issues such as pollution and climate change. Not only can genetic modification improve our quality of life, it could also ensure the survival of the human race. William Isdale spoke with Professor Savalescu about the potential and the ethics of genetic modification in humans. Julian, you've argued that we have a moral obligation to enhance our children. Why exactly do we have such an obligation? Nature is not uh, minded to create equality or to create good or long lives. Uh, the natural state of affairs is normal human variation and in a state of nature, a life which is, as Thomas Hobbes said, nasty, brutish and short. We evolved as animals to live long enough to reproduce, but people want to be happy they want to be healthy, they want to pursue interests, and they want to live long and well. And if we can use our rapidly evolving science to achieve those goals, in my view, we have the basic reason that we have to do anything, that is to improve human well-being. So, for example, in non-human animals, um, the use of, of genetic modification has been able to double the lifespan of a mouse, the so-called Methuselah mouse. In my view, we have a moral reason to prolong human lives if those lives are good, and if we could double those uh, lives, that would be a good thing. Now, of course, there may be other reasons not to pursue that kind of application, such as overpopulation, turnover of generations, creativity of, of new people coming into the world. But other things being equal, it's better that we live longer. And longevity is just one example of, of human enhancement. You write about humans being unfit for the future. Could you give some examples of why we're unfit? Well, we've had uh, th this incredible history of, of technological advance and, and our cognitive powers compared to other life forms on this planet are enormous. And they continue to increase exponentially through the internet and computing. So we've rapidly evolved in the last one or 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, technologies that around the middle of last century could destroy the whole of the human population. And that potential, although it hasn't been realised, obviously, continues to increase through the possible creation of biological weapons, cyber warfare, runaway nanotechnology... Uh, and so on. So we now face unprecedented risks as well as unprecedented opportunities 
to improve our, our lot. As well as technological advance in the last 10,000 years, we've, we've radically changed our social lives from groups of hunter-gatherers of 150 to mega cities consisting of 20, 30, 40 million people and a globalised world. And these two features of technological advance and, and globalisation mean that we are able to affect people all around the world uh, through individual actions and also through collective actions, through pollution and through climate change. So many of the challenges that we face today are not challenges that we evolve to have to ad address on a day-by-day -day basis. So our moral psychology and our set of moral dispositions are essentially those that evolution gave us. Those are the, the ordinary morality, the ordinary moral reactions and psychology of hunter-gatherers. That is, you care for your family and friends, you cooperate with people within your group when you're observed, but you tend to free ride when you're not observed, you're fearful or even aggressive to other groups who may be competing for resources or represent infectious threats, you're altruistic but to a limited extent and mainly to the people that you care about. Those sorts of dispositions are not the sorts of dispositions that are going to deal with problems like climate change or other misuse of technology. There are 7 billion people on the planet. 1% of those people are psychopaths, 70 million psychopaths in the world. It only takes one of them to create a biological weapon like a genetically engineered version of smallpox or even a more lethal biological weapon and the whole of humanity could be destroyed. So in order to address these sorts of problems, we need to radically rethink our ethics, our policies, our politics, but also our very nature and the possibility of modifying our biological dispositions is one part, one part of the jigsaw. It's not the solution, but it's been my argument together with my colleague Ingemar Persson that we need to not only look at the external world, but look, look to within ourselves at the elephant in the room, and that is the human being whose behaviour is going to place its own existence at risk. If we're going to change ourselves, we would want to have a pretty good idea of which traits are most morally valuable, but don't people have all sorts of disagreements about which traits exactly are important? Many people think that ethics is relative, that's relative to different cultures and that we can't agree on a universal ethic. I think if you believe that, you just don't believe that there is any ethics because on that view, the Nazis' ethics were perfectly acceptable if you're a Nazi. And indeed, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and various human rights instruments have been aimed at trying to identify a core universal human morality. So while there is widespread disagreement about some ethical issues, there is also increasing widespread consensus about the wrongs of things like racism, slavery, sexism. We have to begin with the points where we can be reasonably confident that there there is objective agreement and also aim at low-hanging fruit. Uh, nobody really suggests that the wiping out of humanity would be morally neutral or that the torture or killing of innocent people is, is a good thing. And if we look at the dispositions that may generate those sorts of outcomes, they would be what you might call low-hanging fruit. We don't need to solve every ethical issue in order to make some ethical progress. There seems to be pretty widespread consensus that getting rid of diseases is important, but many people are wary about going beyond that. What do you think of that supposed moral distinction between disease and enhancement? 
Well, disease is certainly an important thing that affects our lives, but it's not the only important thing and it's not the only value. In, in fact, you know, how our lives ultimately go and how well they go is, is not merely or even mainly a function of health. It, it's often a function of our social relationships, our level of poverty or affluence uh, and other factors. So I think this, this privileging of, of health and disease as the only value is, is a deep mistake and, and it also exposes us to risk. Where our own behaviour threatens to annihilate us, we don't need to describe those patterns of behaviour as some kind of disease, though typically that's what's happened. When we find people who behave extremely badly, the temptation is to label them as mad or suffering from some sort of psychiatric illness. In my view, that's a mistake. Uh, many human characteristics e exist across a normal distribution curve. Psychopathy, one of the worst human characteristics, blends into an ordinary form of hard-headedness, an ability to make tough decisions and sacrifice people for the sake of, of some abstract good, so-called psychoticism. So people can be at the borderline between health and disease, and what really matters is whether, for example, innocent people die, how their lives go. And if we can modify those things through our use of science, in my view, we ought to at least consider it. So what difference do you think that CRISPR will make compared to pre-existing technologies like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis? Well, first of all, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and genetic selection are, are very effective at, at dealing with single gene disorders like cystic fibrosis or thalassemia. You can select an embryo without cystic fibrosis or thalassemia. They're going to be hopeless at dealing with polygenic diseases, which are many common diseases. So you, schizophrenia will have tens or hundreds of genes involved in, in creating a disposition to schizophrenia, or normal human intelligence will have many, perhaps hundreds of genes involved. And even producing 100 embryos, you'll only be able to select for four or five genes uh, that are advantageous. So when it comes to most diseases, they're not single gene disorders. They're often a combination of environmental and genetic factors, and those genetic factors have a whole range of causes. And to make progress on the genetic contribution of those diseases, we'll need to move beyond the sort of genetic selection that is done today. And more importantly, when it comes to modifying say, the genes that dispose to longevity, these, again, may be several and not easily amenable to simple genetic selection across one, one trait. So by being able to modify a number of genes raises the possibility of, of changing both health and disease and also characteristics like intelligence or other valuable traits that have some genetic contribution. More importantly, again, Genetic selection does not benefit the individual. You're choosing between different individuals. So when you select a healthy embryo rather than an embryo with cystic fibrosis, you didn't benefit the child who would have had cystic fibrosis. You, you simply replaced that child with a healthy child. But if you use CRISPR, you will be able to effectively cure cystic fibrosis for an individual. So in that sense, it provides the potential for real benefits to individuals rather than just choosing between who will come into existence. 
German doctors had not become murderers overnight, and their first targets were not Jews, but so-called Aryan Germans. Since 1933, doctors had embraced the science of eugenics. They believed they could create the master race through experiments and by eliminating people with defective genes. So how is what you're advocating different from the sorts of eugenic programs from the past that we all regard as morally repugnant? Eugenics comes from the Greek meaning well-born, and it's the use of the knowledge of genetics or heredity, as it used to be called, to have better offspring. And this, as this knowledge was, was gained in the, the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, it was increasingly employed to try to deal with social problems. So in both the United States and Europe and, and through most countries in Europe, this very crude knowledge was used to try to address social problems like criminality, poverty and psychiatric illness. And programs were introduced to encourage people who were thought to be more likely to have offspring without these abnormalities to reproduce and eventually programs were introduced to stop those who were judged to be unfit to reproduce from reproducing through the use of involuntary sterilization. This was used in many states in the United States and, and ultimately was used in Nazi Germany. This led, led to the famous Nazi eugenic program which moved beyond sterilization to the extermination of people deemed to be unfit uh, for life which included various gypsies, Jews, various races. It was the imposition of a social Darwinist racist view of how society should be against people's will, ultimately killing them uh, and, and clearly harming huge numbers of people. That was the Nazi eugenic movement. Today, clinical genetics uses much more scientific understandings of the way in which disorders influenced by our genes and it enables people to make their own choices so instead of being involuntary it's voluntary people are provided with information and they're allowed to make their own decision about whether to have genetic testing either at the pre-implantation or prenatal stage and whether to have a termination of pregnancy or perform genetic selection so modern eugenics is very important well it is essentially clinical genetics it's enabling people to have children who are free of genetic disorders, um, but it's different to historical eugenics because it's not based on a vision of how society should be. It's not based on racism or social Darwinism. It's based on values to do with health and plausible understanding of human well-being, and it's couples themselves who make those decisions, so it's voluntary. Now, if CRISPR or other gene editing technologies were to be introduced, in my view, they ought to be introduced according to the principles of what is sometimes called liberal eugenics, where these technologies are made available to people and they're able to make their own decisions about uh, whether to employ them or not. Now, when it comes to possible cures for serious diseases, question does arise whether parents can legitimately refuse those kinds of treatments for their offspring, for their children. So if there were uh, treatments purely, perfectly curative and, and risk-free for cystic fibrosis, and a couple who were Christian scientists who refused medical technologies refused to use such a cure, it may well be that courts would intervene 
to administer that treatment to cure that child cystic fibrosis. Now, if gene editing ever reached a point where it was as predictable and effective as, say, antibiotics, then it may be that parents' power to refuse that on behalf of their children for the cure of diseases would be limited. When it comes to selecting for more controversial traits such as intelligence or uh, musicality or athletic performance, it's unlikely that uh, society would require parents to make those decisions. And indeed, you could make laws that made it a purely you know, a, a voluntary choice based on considerations of the well-being of the child. So you've described this as being liberal eugenics, but how much freedom would you want to see parents having about what sort of traits their children have? Are you pretty free reign about this? Or would you, for instance, allow parents to select the eye color, hair color, those sorts of traits which don't really have any significant effect for that child's well-being that might be sort of more cosmetic? I think to make progress in general in life and, and, and particularly with these new kinds of technology such as gene editing, we need to address very fundamental questions about the human condition, philosophical questions about what is it to have a good life, what is human well-being? And until we can answer those questions, it's very difficult to make decisions about how to limit or encourage the use of technology. In my view, we ought to give people the freedom to make choices about trays that have no significant influence over their child's well-being. So if one couple wants to choose a child with blue eyes and another wants to choose a child with green eyes, there's no particular reason to... Uh, to, to intervene, that's not harming um, the child. But where it comes to traits that are significantly associated with a, a better life, and the most obvious candidates for those are, are genes or biologies that are associated with disease, we ought to be strong, initially strongly encouraging or trying to persuade people to make choices that will improve their child's life. Um, and in the extreme... Um, we ought to require those choices to be made just as when Jehovah's Witnesses refuse a life-saving blood transfusion for their uh, young child, the courts will intervene and authorise a life-saving blood transfusion where some kind of genetic intervention is going to have a profoundly positive effect on a child's life. Uh, it ought to be treated in the same way as, as a life-saving blood transfusion. So I think it all boils down to how closely these trays are associated with uh, the child's prospects for a better life. If, like diseases and health, they're, they're strongly associated, then we ought to make sure the child is protected. Where the choices are have no adverse effects on the child's well-being, then we ought to let couples to have completely free reign over whether they choose this or that. It's very likely that the people who make use of this first will be those who are economically well off. Do you think that there's a risk that we could supercharge inequality by creating a new genetic elite and a corresponding class of new genetic untouchables? It's certainly possible that this could be used to radically increase uh, inequality and it could be used to, to write it into people's biology and their genes so it's passed on to the next generation. There's no doubt that that's one possible scenario. It could also be used to reduce existing natural 
uh, genetic inequality by providing it free or encouraging its use through those who at the moment are already at the, the lower end of advantage. And in my view, it's exactly the same as, as, as healthcare. If some form of healthcare is, has a significant impact on wellbeing, it ought to be provided by the state and it ought to be free and people ought to have equal access to it. Or indeed, people who are the sickest ought to have the most access. And insofar as our biology or our genes affect our lives in important ways outside of health, the same sort of principle should apply. If it's a big impact on how our lives go, then the state ought to provide it or particularly um, subsidise it for, for people who are worst off. To, to give you one example, self-control or impulse control is a very important feature of being able to realise long-term goals and plans, whatever they are, whatever sort of life you want to lead. And children who have poor impulse control do much worse at school and socially. Um, they often end up at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale and in jail. So, of course, like everything, impulse control or self-control varies across individuals. There's normal human variation. Some people have a lot. Some people have very little. And we've invented a new disease category called attention deficit disorder for poor impulse control. And large numbers of children are put on Ritalin and Adderall for the improvement of, of poor impulse control. Now, how far that treatment should extend uh, and how much access people should have will just depend on, on, on how bad poor impulse control is and at what level it starts to impact on people's lives. And it may be that 10% is too much. It may be that 10% is too little. Maybe that the bottom 20% uh, of children would benefit from interventions that safely improve their impulse control. And that's partly a philosophical question about what a good life is and partly a scientific question about how various states of our biology relate to that valued goal and how we can influence that with and what the risk-benefit profile of different interventions are. So if it's important, there ought to be a safety net for people. If it's not important, it's not important if some people buy it and other people can't afford it. Michael Sandel from Harvard, he's a critic of human enhancement, and he's made the point that these technologies could change the relationship that we have with our children because instead of being a gift over which we have little control, they would become the objects of our design. There is a tendency, once a technology is available, to overreach. That's not about health. That's about fueling a certain competitive drive in our society. And in a way, it's using that child as an instrument. This is really about an arms race for a competitive society. Only now it's an arms race that is fueled by new uh, biotechnological possibilities. And I think that can be dangerous. Does that concern you at all? Well, it, it does concern me, and certain designs could be terrible for a child. Uh, for example, if you designed a child to obey your every wish, that would indeed be creating a slave. Uh, that's what we've done with dogs through breeding of, of wolves. And if we did that to human beings, that would indeed be uh, 
controlling that child through my own will. However, people like Michael Sandel and other critics of human enhancement accept that uh, nature uh, often throws up diseases and that we have a reason to intervene there by design to correct um, disease. Now, disease is only one feature of our lives that affect how our lives go. And indeed, the definition of disease is a statistical one. It's sub-functioning, two standard deviations below the mean. That means 2% of people for any trait like vision or intelligence or hearing have a disease. It's a purely arbitrary point to pick. It may be that having vision or hearing or intelligence in the bottom one-third or the bottom 10% makes your life go go worse, even though technically you're not, you don't have a disease, you're normal. So if we accept that we can design our children to be healthier, we should accept we should design them to have better lives. The important feature about health is that it's good for you no matter what you want to do. But the same is true of impulse control uh, within the normal range. The same is true of intelligence. So the same is true of a number of what might be called all-purpose goods. Just as health increases the range of options that a child has for their own life and increases their choice, their range of choices, so too does enhancing certain all-purpose goods, certain all-purpose capacities. What matters and what people like Michael Sandel are concerned about is how children are treated once they have been genetically selected or once they've uh, undergone some sort of biological modification, whether it's a pill or a genetic intervention. They worry about hyperparenting. They worry about what might be called the lang-lang phenomenon of parents forcing their child who shows an early gift or whom they know has an early gift, has a gift from, from, from birth into a certain life. For example, a concert pianist constraining that child's life in only one direction. And I agree, that's bad parenting. But a child can be given a gift just as they can be given health and encouraged to pursue their own interests and their own life, um, as well as having <laughs> the gift or health. Uh, it really is up to us as parents how we treat our children and the concerns about children being subjected to the will of parents is a concern whether or not we live in a world of, of enhancement or whether we live in the world as it is now where parents can put their child into music lessons or basketball training or swimming lessons for an inordinate number of hours from the time they're very young and really narrow the sort of life that they can have. So they, they get at some valid concerns, but I don't think any of these concerns argue against designing children in general. They argue against designing children in a certain way. Gillian, are there any objections to human enhancement that you find the most convincing and which give you pause? The most compelling objection, I think, to human enhancement, besides the one that it could create inequality, which I think is a valid concern, but the one can, that can be addressed through social and political policies, the most valid objection to human enhancement is that many traits that we have uh, will be advantageous in some environments and disadvantageous in others, and many qualities will be complex 
Um, so, for example, there's you know, anecdotal evidence that creativity uh, can be associated with psychiatric disorders such as manic depression. Um, this is called technically pleomorphy, where one gene can express itself in different ways in different environments, some advantageous, some disadvantageous. So is it better to be, say, Vincent van Gogh and have a tortured life, be highly creative, but prone to manic depression and take your life very early on in life? Or is it better to be an ordinary person who will achieve much less than somebody like Vincent van Gogh, but be much happier and, and lead a more stable life? I don't know the answer to that question. And I think there are many cases where it won't be black and white. It will be gray. We won't know that this is, it's better to eliminate the genes that, that are associated with manic depression or, or to promote them or just to let people make their own choices. And I think that gray zone is a very important zone. People tend to think of ethics in black and white. Either there's psychopathy or Mother Teresa. And in reality, there is some black and white. Um, and I think there are some choices that people clearly ought to make and some choices they clearly ought to be prevented from making. But then there's a whole range where it's just going to be very difficult to tell uh, what the best thing is. And I think there we ought to give people freedom to make choices according to how they see the world. Udo Schuklink, he said that the thing that worries him most about CRISPR isn't human enhancement because the number of humans that you would tinker with would probably be very small to start with and humans don't reproduce very quickly. He's more concerned about potential changes to organisms that are released into the wild where there could be runaway effects. What do you think about that? I genuinely think that synthetic biology in general, and, and CRISPR is just one uh, example where you could construct uh, novel organisms, is a huge risk and one that is is of existential gravity that we could intentionally create uh, organisms that there is no way to deal with. It only takes one lunatic to do this and the, the, the game is over. So I do think that synthetic biology is something that ought to be pursued, that it's, uh, that it's offers enormous prospects for dealing with pollution, creating new forms of energy, even what's called biological computing. But I think that the constraints on it and the surveillance of it and the oversight of it is inadequate. And I do think that uh, we ought to be focusing on plants and animals much more than we do. We tend to think of these as relatively benign. There's some concern about release of genetically modified organisms into the environment. But what is on the horizon is creating life forms that have never and could never naturally exist in in, in the natural world. And that, I think, is something that truly is playing God. Um, creating a rabbit um, from scratch by building its DNA using um, you know, molecules, using DNA and assembling the subunits would indeed be pulling a rabbit literally out of the hat. It would be playing God. It would be creating an organism out of essentially inorganic components but it's completely uninteresting. 
you can create millions of rabbits through sexual reproduction. What is genuinely disturbing is creating not rabbits from scratch, but life forms at the first stage bacteria, but then yeasts and larger life forms that have never had a place in the, in the, in the normal natural environment. And I think we really haven't thought through what level of surveillance and protection and isolation and testing we need for those sorts of organisms. And that, for me, you know, everyone has their biases. But for me, the biggest threat that we face ahead of climate change, you know, ahead of nuclear war is the either intentional or unintentional misuse of advances in biology. In December last year, there was a summit in Washington, D.C. to discuss the future of genome editing. And they released a consensus statement that said it would be irresponsible to use CRISPR to alter the genomes of human embryos, exosperm, in order to produce a baby. Do you think that that's the correct approach for the moment? Yeah, it would be irresponsible to proceed with using CRISPR to create a live-born birth, so-called reproductive gene editing. And I've argued in favour of therapeutic gene editing, that is the use of gene editing to study disease, to look for cures for human disease, um, because of the risks of so-called off-target mutations and, and severe abnormalities. However, that's it shouldn't be ruled out in principle forever. Um, we clearly need scientific research into the safety uh, and, and whether gene editing can ever be made safe enough to be employed on human embryos to create a live-born baby. Um, but in the future, it's possible that, that the technology will reach a sufficient level of safety together with the ability to screen embryos and pregnancies to identify early on uh, any uh, genetic uh, mistakes or off-target mutations with the possibility of termination of pregnancy prior to birth. Um, it may be the case that this first starts in catastrophic genetic conditions where a couple is having IVF and they only produce a single embryo with a, with a major genetic abnormality where CRISPR could be attempted as a, as a last uh, resort rescue therapy where the alternative for that embryo is, is certain death. In my view, the position is correct that at this point there is insufficient evidence uh, or insufficient knowledge to attempt to reproduce humans through genetic modification. But in 50 years' time, I don't know what the situation will be. Overall, what do you think about the quality of the moral debate that surrounds CRISPR and genome editing technologies? Are you impressed or depressed by the number of fallacies and or arguments that don't have evidence to support them? Like all new technologies, CRISPR generates a lot of emotion, particularly when it comes to human life and, and, and human embryos and the next generation. And in my view, that uh, emotion has clouded rational argument and that people have been very quick again to call for bans uh, in the absence of more, you know, more clearly delineating the sorts of applications that, that can be pursued and those that, that should be prevented. And there's also, as usual, there are religious arguments masquerading as, as ethical arguments where people have a, a, a basic religious posi position against embryo destruction or embryo modification. And there are also, of course, economic issues that are influencing these debates where individuals have 
an interest in one form of stem cell or gene editing technology using modified adult cells where this would represent a threat to their patents and a threat to their economic interests. So as in all debates, there are a range of positions and you know, I think that the quality of the, the arguments has been, has been very low. For example, you know, one of the arguments has been we shouldn't, we shouldn't modify the genes of the next generation or we shouldn't modify cells in a way that they're passed on, those changes are passed on to the next generation. Many of the things that we do all the time modify ourselves which are passed on to the next generation, like having children later in life or smoking. Uh, and if indeed if those changes were to cure a genetic disorder such as cystic fibrosis, it would be advantageous to pass those on to the next generation so that they didn't have the risk of having a child with cystic fibrosis themselves. So, you know, I think that this is an example of, of a debate that it could be had around synthetic biology or mitochondrial transfer or a whole range of challenges to our ordinary thinking. And I think one of the challenges we face is to, to try to think and discuss these issues in a more balanced and rational way. And that's where we will leave Professor Julian Savalescu. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to Speaking With through iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or if you have ideas for future podcasts, please send us a comment through iTunes.